0: We're in this series going through the Gospel of Matthew, which again is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Kind of the last few chapters, Jesus has just been, it's been a lot of like bad news, judgment, Uh, there was a good, good streak several months ago healings, forgiveness, all these great things happening, and then Jesus just puts a stop to and is like, persecution is coming, all these bad things are going to happen, I send you out like sheep among wolves, so be ready, and then you get this concrete historical example of persecution in the imprisonment of John the Baptist, and after that, Jesus immediately does this, he says, then he began to denounce the cities." which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, and woe to you. But Seda, for the mighty works done in you, if they had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done and you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than you. So you can see we haven't left the parts quite yet. We're we're still in this section. So big, big passage, what's going on here? Let's look, look at the cast of characters, if you will. It'll help it make sense. So Jesus introduces us to three cities, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And these are all towns, cities, in northern Galilee. This is, we're in the, the, the region of Israel, northern Galilee, above the Sea of Galilee. So they're predominantly Jewish cities. And then he says to these three cities, look, you guys aren't repenting. And because of that, your judgment will be greater than, than another list of three cities, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. These are non-Jewish cities. They are known in the scripture sort of um, in an archetypical way in the sense that they are real historical concrete cities, but they were known for such wickedness that they become bigger than themselves. So for you to say like Tyre or Sidon or Sodom, it's it's tapping into the archetypical evil city. We do this today when we say something like, um, you know, we went to this one place. It was it was bad, man. It was like Las Vegas. Now you're not saying you're not you don't mean that's like well they had a circus circus and the buffets were really big. You're talking about the kind of ethical and moral nature of that town. So Jesus says, look, you're in Israel. You're in northern Galilee. You're filled. You're, you're my people. This is Israel but I've done such mighty works in front of you and you're still not repenting. Look, if I had done these things in these so-called wicked cities, they probably would have repented. If if Sodom saw what you saw, it would remain to this day, meaning they would have repented and, and not continued on in wickedness. So you feel that, that's heavy. See, there's this idea being communicated that where Where greater truth and greater clarity is given, there's a greater expectation, there's greater accountability. We don't know exactly the mighty works that Jesus did in these three Jewish towns, but they're, they're obviously magnificent. They are huge. Scripture actually doesn't tell us the list of what was going on there, but Jesus himself is giving the summary. It's like there was tons of mighty works, and you still, you didn't repent? Therefore, Greater judgment—it's this idea again that where where more more truth is revealed, where there is more evidence, when there is more reason to repent, and you still stand in stubbornness, that there is greater accountability. And we do this principle like all the time, like right. um, If a child does one thing, a two-year-old does one thing, you kind of let it pass. But if an like if dad's acting like the two-year-old at the restaurant. You don't, you don't like say it's cute, but oh, like, you're like, what is going on? Because he has greater knowledge, and where there's greater knowledge and understanding, there is this, this principle of greater accountability. Now that, that should give us pause, because frankly, we have access to so much the modern church as we experience it today. I mean, we have Bibles. Do you understand this? We have Bibles. Th- that's an that's a, that's a extra privilege. That's a mighty work that we have. We, what we wrestle with is what Bible translation to choose. We have access to so many Bibles and so many scholars doing different research on translations, and we, we, we wrestle with picking the right one. And then we want to pick, like, the right cover, and the right color, and there's, like, special ones. Maybe I should get, like, the men's devotional or the women's devotional Bible. Like, do you understand this? Like, we are so privileged to have so much access to God's truth and his knowledge, and we have access to, to brilliant teaching. I mean, granted, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wax stuff out there, but you, you can find stuff that's incredible. There's a principle in the Scripture that says where, where much is given, much will be required. That's haunting for us today. With the blessings that our current kind of church context in our country get to enjoy, the privileges that we have, much is given, much will be required. And this also keeps you humble too, um, because you can, you can take a position in life where you look at yourself and go, look, I've done so much, look how accomplished I am. And it's like, do you know the life you were given? Like, you were given this great, great life. Don't, don't, don't puff yourself up with pride to the point where then you look down on someone else and say, oh, you know, they're barely holding, they're barely, they barely hold it together. Look at them, look how much I've done, they're barely holding it together. And it's like, you don't, you don't know their story. You don't know what cards they were dealt. If, if you had suffered as much as that person, maybe you wouldn't just be holding it together. God takes into account the cards that we've been dealt. And in this case, he looks at these three towns who, who are seeing the Messiah in person, in the flesh, seeing miracles, refusing to repent, and he says, your judgment is gonna be worse than these three sort of archetypical evil cities. It's very powerful, but it's, it's also, it's scary. He goes on, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent, Now, important important, uh, note about the word repent. Matthew, the book of Matthew is written in Greek, so the word repent here is metanoeo. But the concept, kind of the biblical concept of repentance is rooted in the the Hebrew word, shuv, and that means to return or to turn or to like change course. So, you are running from the Lord you repent, you shuv, you re- you turn around and you go back to him. Kind of the perfect embodiment of that in a picture is Jonah. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, he he literally like runs from God the other direction from where he's supposed to go and then ultimately God brings him back and puts him on the right path. So it's this idea of going the other way and then turning back. Maybe the image you should have in your head is that of the prodigal son. If you're familiar with that story, the son leaves his father, goes on sinning, and gets involved in this horrific lifestyle, is brought down low. By the end of the story, he's eating in a in a stall with, with pigs and, and leftover food from them. And he returns back to his father. And the beautiful image the Bible gives us is that there's a father not just standing like this. You finally came home, huh? It's the father who waits outside every day for his son to return. And when he sees him, he runs and hugs him and says, let the festivities begin. Jesus says, these people did not repent after all they saw. They're that stubborn. And what's fascinating about this is Jesus pronounces a judgment And he's pronouncing a judgment based upon the standard of how people relate to him. Now, you could just kind of gloss over that really quick and be like, okay, I got it. But no, wait. Jesus is making judgments upon whole cities based upon the standard of how they relate to him. What is that saying about who this person is? What does that tell you about who Jesus is? Judgments are based upon how one relates to him. so much going on here but first just notice what does what does Jesus do after he's just talked about persecution coming persecution there's the imprisonment of John the Baptist he's being rejected by all of these three cities what does he do I thank you father lord of heaven the posture of Jesus is one of trust and gratitude and thankfulness he trusts in the wisdom of his father cuz that's like a most of us would be in a pretty bad, but we're not going to be grateful. You know what I mean? Like judgment, persecution, my John the Baptist, man. In the middle of all that, Jesus takes time. Thank you, God. Thank you, my heavenly Father. I trust you. And then something next level occurs. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Okay, now, quick quick thing. I don't want to go too, too far on this. But sort of... Um, in the academic world, in sort of critical scholarship, there's this idea that very early on, the Christians don't have a fully developed understanding that Jesus is God. And what that, that, that kind of takes place over time, and then eventually they come to that conclusion. And they'll say, if you look at the book of John, which is the last gospel of the four to be written, man, it looks like Jesus certainly is God. But in the earlier gospels, Jesus is just kind of like, I'm oversimplifying, but it's like, he's a prophet. He's, he's the son of man. He's not like second person of the Trinity level. In the gospel of Matthew, you have Jesus saying, no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and to anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Very early, you are getting a glimpse into the mystery that is the Christian teaching of the Trinity, the triune nature of God, that there is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus says the truth of the gospel is being revealed, but who's receiving it? He says it's, it's the little children, while the so-called wise of the world are rejecting it. And those are metaphors. He's not saying that they are actually literally wise. There's the wise of the world, the so-called kind of scholars, the religious elite of the day. But who are the ones so far in the gospel of Matthew who are accepting the message of the kingdom from Jesus? It's the downtrodden, the oppressed, the tax collector, the sinner. They're the ones running to Jesus. Like the prodigal who was off, they're coming back. And he's saying the so-called wise of the world, they're rejecting this. Okay, now we get a, because it's been like four weeks of judgment, persecution, wrath. It's like the storm is opening up. Are you ready? You see the sun. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's like, whew. okay. So much here. Let's take it piece by piece so that we get all the little pieces together so we get the full picture right. Jesus says, come, come to me. Who is, who is to come to Jesus those who are labor and heavy laden. So you're supposed to picture like a day laborer who works every day in the, in the ancient world, sun up to sun down. There's heavy things like picture baskets filled with rocks. There's a weightiness to the work and labor that this person has to do. And obviously, this isn't, he's using this image to communicate metaphorical truth. It's not saying like those of you who are carrying literal weight on your back come to me. But it's this image For those who have weight, you're carrying rocks. You have a heavy burden upon your back. Come to me. Is there anybody who feels like they're carrying weight? You feel it. The heaviness is upon you. He says, Take my yoke. And what is that about? A yoke is essentially this wooden beam that would have two kind of harness-like structures that would take two animals and basically hook them together so that then those two animals can, can pull something. Um, they're going to pull a cart, or may, maybe likely they're going to pull some tools that will till the land, for instance. And so it's something that goes upon your neck and your back, and then that's attached to you so you pull something. Again, it's the image of weight that you're pulling. But Jesus says, no, 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 take take my yoke. My yoke, it's different. It's light. It's easy. It's good. Now, again, symbolically, what is yoke standing for? What's the heavy yoke that he's addressing? Well, there's a number of things it could be, and it's probably a little bit of all of them. In the scriptures, yoke can be used of the yoke of a king or a ruler. So whoever is the new king or the new ruler, you are living under them. So you were under the weight of that new king or ruler, so there's a yoke of the authority. There's also the yoke of of the weightiness of life. In the Old Testament, it talks about when Israel was in Egypt in slavery, it talks about the yoke of slavery. So it's being under the weight of the oppression of Egypt in slavery. Again, it could just be the yoke of everyday struggle in life. Most of the people he's talking to are economically poor. They pray for daily bread, they're barely making it, so there's the angst and worry and stress of provision, will I have enough? There's also something uh, called the yoke of Torah, which we'll need some time to unpack. So, Torah, again, is the word used for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, there's the yoke of that. But those first five books are significant because they contain the law of god and there's roughly 613 rules commands and statutes in those first five books those commands are called in hebrew the mitzvot and so there are written mitzvot which are a part of the law but at this time there has been an ongoing and continual development of an additional set of laws so you would have the written laws those votes, those commands that are in the Torah, the first five books, but then the rabbis, the Pharisees, and the teachers were also prescribing additional rules and laws built upon those, and those what we'll call the oral law or the oral Torah or the oral votes. So you have written commands and then the ones that are kept on through the traditions. Now, an important Hebrew concept comes from the word halakha, and halakha is the sum total of God's law. And that word can be translated as walk or the road that you walk. So it's used metaphorically. And we do this, by the way. Like, we ask people, how's your walk with God? What do we mean? We don't mean like, did you go out at 6 p.m. and take a walk? how's your walk with god is metaphoric for how you're living in relationship to god so halakha, your walk is how you're living in light of the sum total of god's commands both the written ones in the torah and then at this time these additional kind of oral commandments that were being developed now jesus and the entirety of the bible looks at the written law the torah And they're like, this is awesome, this is beautiful. You could read in the Psalms how how David would say, like, I delight in God's law. I meditate upon the Torah and his law all day long. It brings me joy. Oh, how I long just to study it. But there's a critique that Jesus gives to this kind of these additional commands that are being developed. He says they're like heavy burdens that you're putting on people's backs. So flash forward in the Gospel of Matthew all the way to chapter 23, and you read this. Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. That's the position of authority. And they do so and observe. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are willing to move, are not willing to move them with their finger. Do you see that image? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Is that not the parallel image, right? So Jesus is saying God's law, Torah, the written word, good, beautiful, awesome. But then there's this problem because people are, are making following God this, this burdensome task. They're adding this extra weight. And Jesus critiqued to the Pharisees is they're doing that and they don't, even, they don't even do what they say, so don't, don't be like them. So there's like yoke of this additional kind of law that's from men and not from God. So you have the yoke of Torah, like the yoke of slavery, you have the yoke of the everyday threats of life, you have the yoke of Rome, you have all these different things that are being added to these people's backs. And Jesus says, No, come to me. Take my yoke, my yoke. The Greek word used for easy here, my yoke is easy. It's probably, it, it, easy is not a bad translation. It's, it's Christos, but it, it could mean something along the lines of like good or kind. So it's not necessarily that Jesus is saying like, take this yoke, dude, it's so easy. It's, this is the good one. This is the kind one. This is one what someone who loves you would give you. And why is that important? Because Jesus is not saying, take the yoke off, You don't work, the life's going to be easy. He actually gives you a new one, but it's a good one. It's a kind one. It's from someone who loves you, who is not against you. And he says, in exchange, give me the heavy one. Bring to me your burdens, all you labor and who are heavy laden. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." for my yoke is good, it's kind, it's easy, and my burden is light. Okay, Jesus says the end goal of this is that you would get rest, that you would get rest. Now again, what would they need rest from? Well, a lot of the things we just said. Israel has been oppressed for hundreds of years. Most of the people he's talking to live in abject poverty. They're barely struggling to get by, There's all this chaos in the world. There's existential anxiety about all these things that are up in the air. All kinds of things that you you need rest from. And at this point, you're probably like, okay, that's what I'm here for. That's what I want too. I want this rest that he's talking about. But before we do that, we have to kind of unpack some things about rest. Because... When modern people think about the word rest, we are not thinking about the same thing that ancient people would be thinking about. Most of the time, rest means for us, it's like, did you get a good rest? It's like, did you take a nap? Or many of us um, work really, really hard Monday through Friday, and we have long commutes, and so rest is just making it to the weekend so I can sleep in. Now, all of that's important. You You need to get good sleep. You need to get good naps, you need good rest, but rest in the ancient world is something fundamentally different than just getting to sleep in type of thing, getting, getting more hours. There's so some unpacking we have to do because rest is a theme and a motif that's developed not only in the Old Testament scriptures, but it's a theme and motif that's used in the ancient Near Eastern literature that surrounds the biblical world. And so what I want to briefly do is show you how the theme and motif of rest functions in the Old Testament and also in ancient Near Eastern literature that's, sur- that's surrounding the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Rest, then, is not merely getting more sleep. It is what you get when the external threat of the enemy is removed. And you can look at... Um, creation accounts by other cultures in the ancient Near East, and oftentimes their creation stories begin with some massive problem. There's chaos, there's bad guys, and some god or goddess or sets of gods or goddesses must defeat the external enemy before they can finally rest. So rest occurs when the external threat is removed. Now I'm going to share with you uh, an example of this that's super weird, super weird. There's a Babylonian creation account called the Enuma Elish. And in that story, the, the creation account, begins with these two deities named Apsu and Tiamat, and it says their waters are commingling, and then Apsu and Tiamat give birth to all these other gods, their children. Okay. Now, you, you, what you think would immediately happen is like, they were so happy, there's new babies, and blah, blah, blah. No, the dad, Apsu, is like, The kids are noisy all day long. They are my enemy, and I must kill them. Literally, this is how the story goes. This is an ancient Near Eastern Babylonian creation account called the Numen Elish. And so Apsu, the kind of father god, the deity, is so enraged his children are now his enemies. And he says the children prevent him from having rest. So the children in the story become the enemy, and there's a great big war that ensues and revenge and all kinds of... It's, it's horrible. But the point is this. Apsu says of his children, their ways are verily loathsome unto me. By day I find no relief, no repose. By night I will destroy, I will wreck their ways, that quiet may be restored. Let us have rest. Now this is exactly how the concept, the theme and motif of rest functions in the ancient world. There's an external threat of chaos by enemies. And in order for one to have rest, the enemies must be destroyed. And I want to show you some Old Testament passages because it functions in the exact same way. This is Deuteronomy. God is preparing Israel to enter into the promised land. He says, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord God is giving you but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety and it goes on so you follow this when does rest occur when when the enemies the external threat of the bad guys are removed when you have safety all around you. Now, you understand this because um, when there is a lurking threat, right, and it doesn't have to be someone, in this case, the people want to kill you, but it doesn't even have to be that. There is just some external threat. Your soul is not at proper rest, right? And for some of you, this is what you wrestle with because it doesn't have to be like bad guys trying to kill you. It could be like the external threat of a failed paid bill that now you're gonna get charged $15 late fee for and you're up at night like stressing about it, right? It could be something that small to something massive but it's the external threat that poses this. But God says to Israel, I'm gonna take out your enemies and then I'll put you in the land and then you will have rest. Now, did Israel get good night's sleep before then? the, The issue is not sleep. It's not taking time away and making sure, you know, you're focusing on me. Look, all of... All of that stuff, you you need rest, you need good sleep, but this is something much bigger. Look at it in Joshua. Thus the Lord God to Israel. Thus the Lord gave the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. So now Israel is settling in the promised land. Listen, and the Lord gave them rest on every side. Just as he had sworn to their fathers. What does rest on every side mean? What do you think it means? It means peace. There's no bad guys trying to kill you as they surround you. And you can look up Joshua 21, look at the verses after that. It talks all about Israel's enemies. It makes this which is implicit explicitly clear. You get rest on all sides. Because the enemy, the external threat of chaos and death has been destroyed and removed. The promised land is the place where there's no enemies. People will talk about heaven being the heavenly rest. It's not because you're sleeping. It's because there's no more death, no more tears, no more famine, no more war. That's rest when the external threat of death and the enemy has been removed. Now listen to this. This is... the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to Israel and he's warning them that they're continuing on in sin and ultimately, if you're familiar with the biblical narrative of the Old Testament, because Israel continues on in sin, what happens? Their enemy, the Babylonians, come in and destroy them. But before that destruction comes, God gives them a warning and this is what he says. Thus says the Lord. Now Lord, we say this often, but a quick reminder, Lord is all in capitals there. So in the Old Testament, when you're in your Bible and you see the word Lord all in capitals, the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. It's talking about the personal, covenantal name of the God of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So there's an image. There's coming judgment and you're standing at the crossroads. And you have to choose which way you are going to go. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, return to the old roads. Go to the ancient paths. Go to the ancient paths and walk in it. That's that idea again of that halakha, walking in the old ways, what your fathers walked in. When we established the covenant, go back to the law of Moses. Return to me. Repent. You're going down this, you're at the crossroads and you're going this way. Turn around. Return to the old roads and walk in them. And if you do so, if you do so, what happens? Babylonians don't come in and destroy. What happens? You will find rest for your souls. Hundreds of years later, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Now here's where all kinds of things start to to come together. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus is offering the exact same thing with the exact same phrase that Yahweh, the God of Israel, offered Israel in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the one who can offer rest for your souls. People would have known that verse. And Jesus says, you want to walk in the old roads? You want to walk in the ways of the Lord? What did we just talk about? Repentance? People need to repent, turn. But now who do you turn to? You turn and walk in the ways of Jesus. And then he says the exact same thing that Yahweh said in Jeremiah but he says I will give you rest for your souls. Now then you need to ask kind of logically, well what's what's the threat? What's rest is the removal of the enemy, right? The 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 external threat of chaos and death. Well, what's that in this context? Well, you got to ask yourself the question, what is the mission of Jesus? Why did he come? Jesus came to defeat to conquer, to be victorious. And what did he come to defeat? Satan, sin, and death. The three great enemies Satan, sin, and death. Sin because humanity, corporately and individually, has rebelled against God. And there is in Scripture a, a creature called Ha Satan. It, it's, it's the Satan. Satan isn't a personal name, it's a title. There's the Satan, the accuser, who looks at guilty humanity and says, Guilty. Guilty. Shame. Guilty. And then because of that, theologically, there's a punishment for this. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely... There's death involved. The three great enemies. Satan, sin, and death. The mission of the Son of God was to come to earth to defeat the works of Satan to defeat sin, to bring about forgiveness and ultimately offer his people not death but life. Jesus is saying, you repent. I am coming to defeat Satan, sin, and death. Come to me with your faults and your failures, your sin and your shame. I know you have the heavy yoke. I know you have hard labor and you feel the weight upon your back. I know your faults and your failures, but still come, come, come to me and I will give you rest. Now, there's a big problem at this point, huge problem. Jesus says, you take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Like this is fascinating. Jesus is giving you a glimpse into his heart. Do you follow this? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. You're getting a glimpse into the heart of the son of God. And his heart is one of gentleness and lowliness and one that says to his children, just come. So have this image of your head like the prodigal son, but maybe not to his grown son, but to a young boy. It's a the, it's the good father who sees his child in pain and hurting and suffering and just says, come. that's my. It, it is God's desire for you to come. Now, this, this is the problem. We read that, and we might intellectually affirm that. Oh, yeah, I believe God wants, bring my burdens to him, I know. But honestly, on an emotional level, for many of us, for many of you, there's a massive disconnect. Because you don't see God like this. You don't see Him as the loving, kind, and gentle Father. Just come to me. It's my joy. It's my delight and my desire for you to approach me. You see Him uh, in your mind more of like, yeah, I know God, God says that and He tells me to come and He loves me, but it's sort of because He has to because He's God. You know? He's really more like, all right, get over here. Get in the car. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, get get over here. Or it's, um, picture a small child who likes catching bugs and spiders and slimy things, and then he has a friend who doesn't, and he passes the banana slug over. And the other person goes, ugh. Some of you, picture God in that manner, that when God holds you, it's sort of, do I have to? You on an intellectual level, you know, you may, oh yeah, God's loving, but it's, or it's like, well, he's good, so he has to, so if you're a polite person and you go to someone's house and the food is bad at dinner, what do you do? You pretend as if you like it, because you're being polite. God's like that. He, he, he really doesn't like you, but he's a good guy, so he's going to pretend. No, I'm telling you, on an emotional level, this is where many of us are at. And this is amplified exponentially, depending upon our, our childhood, by how our parents raised us, especially our fathers, because we project earthly father upon heavenly father. And so you picture God as getting in the car right now. And Jesus is saying, my heart is gentle and lowly. Come to me. Just just come. It is my desire that you come to me. And, and you are meant to picture the kind and loving God who's not just waiting to, you better wait till we get home. because he wants to give you rest. But we have a hard time believing that about ourselves, right? We have a very difficult time with this. And so we have to remind ourselves of a number of things. We have to remind ourselves of the heart of God. We have to remind ourselves what Scripture is teaching and not let our fickle emotions determine what we think about God because there's a beauty and awesomeness here. Like, God says says to come... And what's the prerequisite? What what is the prerequisite? Like, what do you have to do for Jesus to say, come, I want to hold you and take your burden? What do you have to do? What's the prerequisite? Come to me, all who labor, who have heavy laden, who have burden. What do you have to bring to be accepted by God? You just bring your problems, your sin, your shame, your fault, your failures, your prerequisite. The one thing you have to bring is your sin, your mistakes. That's all... Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who are perfect. Come to me, all you who are gifted and talented. Come to me, all you who have accomplished much. Come to me, all you who are like the perfect church members, man who got it all together. Come to me, all you who are talented so I can use your gifts to expand my kingdom. No, come to me if you're tired. Are you tired? Do you have burdens upon your back? Do you have the stress of life? That's what you bring. Come, and I will give you rest for your soul. The enemies, the great enemies, Satan's sin and death, have been defeated. Your sin cannot accuse you anymore. It's been forgiven. The accuser's accusations have no weight or authority over you. And ultimately, even if you were to be struck down today, that death will not have the final word. Christ himself will your good Savior, who says, just come. And so we get a glimpse into the heart of God and what he's like. And so for some of you who do not know this Jesus, this is something you have to do for the first time. You have to say, all right, prerequisites, check. Got plenty of it. This is why I love that first song we sang. Like, I, I, Sometimes I wouldn't even be able to sing it. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Bring it. You bring it to him. The sin, the shame, the fault, the failures, the gifts, the mistakes, all of it. Say, Jesus, give me your yoke. It's a good one. It's a kind one. It's because you're for me, not against me. And so some of you need to do this for the first time. You need to trust in Jesus. And then for many of you who are already Christians, this is something you need to practice regularly. And one of the ways that we practice this regularly is every Sunday we worship and we take communion. We say, my sins, yours. You died for them. And we remember by the body and the blood By the bread and the cup. My sins have been crucified with Christ. They are dead. I cannot be accused of them any longer. And so, take it. And so as we transition into communion, I want us to sort of kind of visualize that, you know? Take that stuff on your back and give it to him. He's not out to get you. He's for you. He loves you. It is his desire for you to come like children to him. And there's a temptation here. In kind of the modern church world, there's a temptation where we go, okay, okay, specifically, how do I do, like, do that? How do I get more rest? And then, you know, and there's, there's a time and place for this. It's not bad. It's good. But there's a, like a, well, this is how you get more rest in your life. Make sure to, to turn off your cell phone at this time. Don't have white lights on in the house. and. At another time, we'll talk about that stuff because you need that. It'll it'll make your life better, okay? But Jesus is not talking about that type of rest. There is something that God himself must accomplish. There's no, here's the three steps to receive. It's, or here's the three practices that'll help you experience this. In this passage, it's come to Jesus with your burdens, your faults, your sin, your shame, And say, Can you take them from me? And you put it in his hands. And God himself has to do the work. And for some of you, that might be bad news, but it should be good news. Because you've been trying really hard through the works of your hands to make it work. And so you just say, God, I trust you. Even if I don't feel it magically turn everything around in this very moment, I'm trusting you. I'm coming to you with my grief and my sorrows, my sin and my shame. Do what you will with it. So let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. As we take this, we remember the victory of Jesus over the great enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Our sins may be many. His mercy is so much more. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. This is where we pledge our faithfulness and allegiance to our King to speak His life, death, and resurrection until He returns. That's a yoke that's worth carrying. To carry the weight of being one who speaks of the good news of the victory of Jesus. Lord, so we happily and joyfully take upon your kind yoke upon our backs. We know you made it. It is good and it is kind. And may we walk in the work that you've given us. And now, Father, as we turn in worship, I pray that your spirit would minister to the people in this room, that you would begin removing the weight that's on so many people's backs. It is a work that only you can do. You said, your word says, the the requirement is that we come to you. So we come to you in these moments, bringing this, minister to us, strengthen us, heal us. It is a work only your spirit can accomplish, and we trust in you, Father, We thank you for the work of your Son, and we thank you for the empowerment of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.